Let's pray together before we begin. Pray. Father, already we're only in the middle of the week, and uh, the bodies are getting tired, uh, the brains are full, the hearts have gone through a lot of, lot of emotion, a lot of experience, and we can start feeling worn out, body, soul, uh, all the way through, Lord. And so we just pray that you would sort of enable us to press on, to press forward, to hear the things that you would want us to hear, to grapple with the things that you want us to grapple with to lean into the parts of your kingdom that you would want us to lean into. Father, all of us have blind spots, gaping parts of our lives that you need to speak into. And we pray that as we go through this week, and even right now, that you would speak into those places, into those gaps, into those dark recesses, those places of doubt and disbelief, and that you would work there pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, last night, yesterday, I was thinking about our talk today and uh, decided to do some different things. Some of that based on just my time here and little things that I'm hearing. Also recognizing that you guys are hearing so much. You just got a class, I mean, I just saw a thing on there, it was a Christ-centered interpretation just walking by. You got some thick stuff going on next door. You're being given some really good stuff at night. Um, then you've got the, what, you've got this class, second class, the evening talk, and then you have the gospel talk, right? Grace, Grace. Grace talk. Got to get my lingo, lingo straight here. Um, you're getting a lot of the gospel. You're getting a lot of doctrine, of theology, of worldview, of, of a variety of things. And while you're going to get a little bit of that from me, I'm actually hoping that we're going to press on some different points in your life today. Um, sort of push some different buttons and maybe some of the big ones that are already being pushed. Uh, sometimes it's like a piano, you can't push, you know, if you're playing a chord, we might need to push some different keys, but we're going to play some other keys that you're already playing in the chord as well. And one of the things I want to get at today is we're going to talk about prayer. And uh, I'd like to begin by asking a question, then I want to, I'll talk about some of these different keys that we're going to push on. And the question I want to start with is this. When do you tend to pray, and why do you pray? And I want you to just sit there and think about that question for just a moment. I'm not going to ask you to blurt it out. But I want you, I'm going to ask for a moment of honesty. Not with me, but with yourself. When do you tend to pray, and what do you tend to pray about? How often does your prayer get beyond the dinner table or the breakfast table or things of that sort? So when do you pray, and what do you tend to pray about? I think that's a really important question. I think one of the things that the church wrestles with in the West, not globally, but in the West, especially here in the U.S., is prayer. Jesus says one of the things that ought, ought to define us as a people is that we are a people who call on the name of the Lord, that the church of God is to be a house of prayer. And I think that there's many things that you might, if I were to ask you to describe your church, if you were to even describe my church, we might use a lot of different language. We might say, hey, there's great preaching that goes on there. We do a lot of service. Uh, we have great music at our church, nice people. Those are all really good things. Jesus says the one thing that really ought to describe us is that we are a house of prayer, comprised of people who know what it means who, to call on the name of the Lord. One of the things that ought to describe us in the Christian life, what ought to, one of the things that ought to describe what it looks like to follow Jesus is that to follow Jesus means to be a person who calls on the name of the Lord. What I sort of know is going to happen, and what I'm asking is, just sort of, we want some frank honesty in this room. And some of you know this, and some of you are already afraid of this, is that you've had this schedule here, and this schedule has done a wonderful thing for you. It's pressed you to pray, right? 
It's pressed you to do a lot of things. It's pressed you to do some things you don't want to do, and it's not allowed you to do some things you do want to do, like sleep, right? And so this schedule has been the thing that you know today, today is Wednesday at 8.30 tonight, you're going to pray. But the struggle is going to be when you go down this mountain and you go back to wherever you came from, you're going to go, and some of you, and you did this last year, you're going to have stories to tell. You're going to be excited about the week. You're even going to be excited about the way God met you in very distinct, very personal, and actually some very real kinds of ways. The struggle that you're going to have, and that many of you are going to have, is that a month later, and two months later, and three months later, the prayer that you found so common during your time here will elude you and escape you. It will be all but gone. Unless some dynamics go with you down the hill. Unless you can leave with a sense of urgency in your praying, a sense of confidence in your praying, and a sense of expectation in your praying. If you're not moved by a sense of urgency and a sense of confidence and a sense of expectation in your praying, if we've lost that, then the thing that I can guarantee is that prayer will not define your experience in the church. And somehow your experience in the Christian life will be very anemic as compared to what Jesus has actually intended for you. So much of what Jesus has purchased for you, the abundant life that he offers in Jesus, is to be experienced as we gather as his people and pray. And so prayer is not just a, a pious spiritual exercise that is part of the disciplines of the Christian life. It's not just something that your youth leader asks you to do. It's not just an obligation. It's a way that we begin to participate in this new way of living that Jesus secured for us at the cross. It's actually part of the way that you experience the abundant life that you actually crave as a human being. But you, but you experience it through prayer. That's a really important point. And unless we find a sense of urgency in that, unless we find a sense of expectation in what will actually happen in our praying, and have find a sense of confidence to pray knowing that he hears us and that he'll respond, we just won't pray. That's what I've learned from my own life. It's what I've learned from the experience of the church. And those who are 10 and 20 years older than you will tell you that very thing. That you'll find yourself 10 years later and 20 years later, and you'll be in a church like mine and I remember speaking at Easter, and I said, look, the perpetual word I find in my church to describe the Christian life, the way that most people describe it every single year is this one word, and it's the word struggle. Perpetual struggle. I'm Rick, I'm struggling. Rick, I'm struggling. I meet him next year. Rick, I'm struggling. Praise God, that word is changing in our church. But for three years, it was the only word I heard. What is your experience of the Christian life? I struggle. What is your experience of following Jesus? I struggle. What is your experience with everything? It's sort of a struggle. And I think one of the reasons we struggle so deeply is because God has promised you so much. All that you need for life and godliness, Peter tells us, has been put on a table like this for you. He says, look, I purchased it all for you. It's sitting there. It's available. You have immediate access to it. You can find grace and mercy to help in time of need, and that is found as we pray. And so I just have a great burden for you, having lived so much of what I just described, and having lived it in the ministry. And that's pathetic. But God is graciously bringing me out of that by teaching me something about urgency and about confidence and about expectation. And this is really the last time I get to talk to you, I think. We're gonna have one more gathering, just on a side note, next, uh, tomorrow. And if you've submitted questions, if you have issues that you want us to address, we're gonna meet as just the whole group. And uh, I'll be a part of that, but we get to address those questions. But this is the last class I'm gonna have with you. And so this is the last time for me, not just to give you a bunch of things, but this sort of like a father almost to his kids, the things that I'm burdened for for you, the things that I know that you're going to experience, if certain things don't sink in deep before you leave. 
And I know them so much because I, I pastored the generation above you. The group of people who were in their mid to late 20s to early 30s, they're in my church. I know where they went. I know where they were when they were, when they were your age. I know where I was. So I'm concerned about this. So, and I want us to grapple with us, all of this by looking at a passage. And I'm hoping as we do this that my voice is going to take me through the next remainder. I felt like I left in the last class. We're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 18, if you want to turn there. Kings chapter 18. We're going to jump in at verse 19, but let me just paint the picture of what's going on here. This is roughly uh, somewhere between 700 BC and 722 BC. And the reason that we know that is Hezekiah is king of Judah. And if you remember from just your biblical stories, after Solomon was king, the nation of Israel was divided. You had ten tribes to the north, and you had two tribes to the south. In 722 B.C., Assyria came and wiped out the northern ten tribes, conquered them, dispersed them. That's just taken place. We read about that in the beginning of chapter 18. After conquering northern Israel to the north, that same Assyrian nation, who is the world power at that time, under their king Sennacherib, comes into the land of Judah. And the way that the land of Judah was set up at the time was sort of like Lord of the Rings. You know how they have all those outposts, all those great cities, and those, maybe they, they probably didn't look like those cities, but you had these fortified cities, and you always read about a great king, and when God would bless a king, the first thing that he would do would be to fortify his cities, which is always uh, such a sidebar conversation, because one king sets them up like, this is going to be the thing that defends our nation against all the enemies, and the next king comes, and his heart moves away from God, and all those city, fortified cities are wiped out immediately. But the Assyrians have come in, and all the outlying fortified cities they've wiped out. They're gone. There's, no, there's nothing left. All that's left is the city of Jerusalem, where the kings have lived. It's the centerpiece. It's where the temple is. And now this great army, which is about 200,000 men, has come and it's gathered around the city. And we sort of jump into the story right there. And imagine in the city, if you will, and on the walls are the army of Israel, are the army of Judah. Judah. That's probably 20,000 people. You have 200,000 and a tenth as many people held up inside the city, uh, inside those walls, which now as I'm thinking about Lord of the Rings, it's like the Battle of Helm's Deep, right? There it is. So if you go to my church, there's always a Lord of the Rings illustration somewhere. In the course of the month. So we've got to throw one in. Missed it in the first class. It's the Battle of Helm's Deep. You've got all these little runts, you know, wearing stuff. And you've got that big massive army out there. That's what we're looking at right now. And King Hezekiah is the king in the middle of that city. And when we read about Hezekiah, I was telling the last group, we really get to read about a great man of God. I love Paul and Timothy. When he writes Timothy, he says, Timothy, you man of God, you. And like There are many things that you and I can be called in this life. To be designated a man or a woman of God is probably the best designation we could ever get. And Hezekiah is a man of God. He's a man of distinction. He's a man who lives a compelling life. And we're told about Hezekiah actually in verse 5. Hezekiah was a man who trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among all those who were before him. What made Hezekiah such a great man is not because he, you know, he wrote out like Russell Crowe or uh, what's uh, the writer in Lord of the Rings, Aragon. What makes Hezekiah a great man, a man of God? 
is that he's a man of faith. He's a man who trusts in the Lord. He's a man who's willing to walk against the stream. And we're told, so we're introduced to him, and then we're told about this scenario right away. And so we're going to jump into the story, and we're going to read quite a bit, but it's a story. So we need to sort of read the story. So we're going to read verse 19 of chapter 18, and we're going to read to just the beginning of chapter 19. So read along with me. And the Rabshakeh. So let me tell you about the Rabshakeh. The Rabshakeh is, that's a title. It's an office. It's not a name. It's not, his name is not Rabshakeh. It would be a great name. You should name your boy that. It's an office. He's the press secretary. He's the voice for the king of Assyria, Sennacherib. So Sennacherib speaks through his press secretary, who is the Rabshakeh. That's an office. So back in the story. And the Rabshakeh said to them, speaking to the people of Judah, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting now in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it, such as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses, if you're able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants, when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I've come up against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, Go up against this land and destroy it. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and Shebna, and Joah, said to the Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic. For we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. So there's the picture. All the people are on the wall, and Rabshakeh is down on the ground. We said in the last movie, it's like a movie Troy, where you have Achilles coming and he's standing before the walls, and you got all the people on the walls looking down, except for it's not just Achilles, you got 200,000 people standing behind him. These people on the wall who are. Uh, but the Rabshakeh said to them, has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you, and, to not, and not to the men sitting on the wall, who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and to drink their own urine? When the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord will surely deliver us, and this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me, and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine, and each one his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, that you may live and not die. And do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Shepharavim and Hina and Iva? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand? That the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. But the people were silent 
and answered him not a word. For the king's command was, Do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. We're going to read three more verses. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and the senior priests, covered with sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amoz. And they said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. The word of the Lord. What I want us to note, notice today, what I want to grab your attention is the urgency of Hezekiah's situation. And I want you to see it, see it through three different lenses. Hezekiah's urgent situation, number one, that the situation that was confronting Hezekiah and the people of Judah was way beyond any hope. It was way beyond any hope. There were 20,000 of them outside the... The walls was an undefeatable army. And that army, everywhere it had gone, had not only defeated that city, but had devoted it to destruction, which means they annihilated everything in the city. It was a scorched earth policy. You know what that is? Where you go through the land and you just annihilate everything that's living and breathing. And that's what Assyria had been doing. They'd been going through the land and just annihilating it. We're told that in chapter 19 devoting all these nations to destruction. They actually didn't do that to Israel. They dispersed most of them. But most of the nations they defeated, they devoted to destruction. And I love what the Rabshakeh says. He says, just to illustrate how bad your situation is, he says, if I were to give you 2,000 horses, let's say I helped you a little bit even. I spot you some points in this battle. And the way I'm going to spot you some points is I'm going to give you 2,000 horses. And if some way you managed to find 2,000 men in your city who could ride these horses out into battle against us, your problem is you wouldn't be able to defeat my weakest, lowliest captain in my army. He alone, that lowly captain, would annihilate you with the 2,000 horses that I give you. That's how bad your situation is. Completely against hope. That's what they're facing. There's no conceivable way that you can arrange that situation or look at it where you can find any hope. And the Rabshakeh is doing a great job of, of sort of painting the picture to all the people as they sit on the wall. Look, you're in a bad situation and it's gonna go from bad to worse. You're gonna be eating dung, you're going to be drinking urine, and after you finish that great delectable meal, I'm going to annihilate you. That's what's sort of waiting for you, just so, what you, just so that you're clear, right? One of the things that you realize when you follow Jesus, as you go down the hill, as you respond to the call to follow Jesus, is that very often Jesus will lead you to the same place. He'll lead you into a circumstance that feels very similar to the kind of circumstance Hezekiah finds himself in. A circumstance that feels like you're beyond hope. There's no hope to be found. There's no way you can arrange the circumstance to find any hope. And the reason, and the way that we experience that is by engaging people. John talked, I'm getting this right, you did talk about the woman at the well, right? Here I'm quoting, I'm going to make sure I'm quoting the right passage. So John talked about the woman at the well. When we follow Jesus and as we live life, as you go down the hill and as you begin to engage people in your life, what happens is you become stained with the weight of people. As you engage people like the woman at the well, what happens is you expose yourself to their pains and to their problems and to their burdens and to their difficulty and sometimes to their despair. 
it penetrates you. It gets into you. You feel the burden of it. You get stained by other people. Real ministry can't be done at arm's distance. Jesus didn't do ministry at arm's distance. He rolled up his sleeves and he got himself enmeshed in the life of other people. And when you do that, it's going to stain you. You're going to feel the burden of the plight of people. You're going to feel the weight of the despair of your friends. And you're going to be exposed to that, and it's going to affect you. And sometimes you're going to be brought to the place in that where you feel like you have no hope. Yesterday at lunch, I had a friend call me. Right in the middle of lunch, I got called out to have a conversation with him. And he said, Rick, I've had this partner, and this friend of mine was given a, a great company, this construction company. And he got a new, this guy had retired, given him this company, and he had brought in this partner this, from this other place where he had worked for some time, and they've been working together now for a couple months, and what he had found out is for the last four to six weeks, this person who was his partner had been stealing money out of the account, and had been telling him that bills were being paid that weren't paid, and this friend of mine who lives down the street has a brand new baby, this is Mark and Jackie and Ella, for my boys, you know them. And he said, Rick, I've got $7,000 in bills that are due right now, $10,000 in the next two weeks, and I have no money. If I don't pay this bill in the next couple of days, I'll lose it all. You know, because all these bills have been amassed, and the problem was not only had this person been taking the money, these bills were in Mark's name. So Mark was responsible for all that. So he calls me, and Mark is a tough guy. He's all tattooed. Half of my church is tattooed up. And Mark is weeping. He's weeping. He says, Rick, what am I going to do? And it's hard to get a, a phone call from that and not have that stain you. The burden of other people. He's at his end. He feels like he's going to lose his family. He's going to lose his family home. He says, Rick, I have no hope. He says, you need to pray for me. You need to help me. And that quickly leads you to not only will you feel the stain of other people, you're going to feel the stain of your own inadequacies. You're going to feel the stain of yourself. Because as, as you get exposed to people, as you get exposed to their pain, the first thing that you feel, and the first thing that I feel as I talk to Mark is what? I can't help him. I feel limited. As Hezekiah is walking through the city, and the women are, have, have lost so much strength and hope that they don't even have the strength to give birth. Hezekiah not only feels the burden of those people, he recognizes his own inabilities. What can he do? How can he deal with the despair and the depression and the loss of strength that's sort of permeating his people? Paul grappled with this all the time. You, you read about it in 2 Corinthians. Actually, that whole letter is about this. It's about his ministering out of his weakness. He writes to the church and he says, Look, what I've come to recognize is who's sufficient for these things? I'm not competent for these things. I'm not competent to be a minister of God's grace. I don't have what it takes. And the more that you follow Jesus, not only only you begin to bear the, the stain of other people as you expose yourself to them, that's, that comes along with bearing the stain of your own inabilities, your own sin that gets in the way. People share with you their great burdens, but you, you get sidetracked by your own issues. And then you feel the weight of that. I'm, I'm so consumed about myself. I, lose, I forget about them, and they're struggling. And you deal with these things. You're also at times going to bear the weight of God's glory. We're going to see this as we get a little bit further, as we see Hezekiah's response. We're going to see this taking place in Hezekiah. I think one of the things that we have to remember is that when you become a Christian, what happens is that you get exposed to the person of Jesus. You don't just get exposed to a worldview, a way of perceiving this world. You don't get exposed merely to a a nice, systematic uh, uh, set of beliefs Christianity is you as a person 
being exposed to another person, and that person is Jesus. I meet with so many people. There's one guy I meet with all the time who's grappling with homosexuality in our church. And he meets with me, and we go out to lunch, and our conversation is the same every single time. He wants to talk about ethics, Christianity and ethics. And I tell him, we're not going to talk about, I said, for you, the issue is not ethics. The issue is a person. What are you going to do with the person of Jesus at the end of the day? Because until you grapple with him, we don't have a lot to say about ethics. Christianity is being exposed to a person, actually being stained with the person of Jesus, being exposed to him, and letting him as a person stain you so that you feel the weight of his glory. And you feel the burden that people would see Jesus for all his excellence and all his splendor, for all that he really is. Paul talks about this, I think, in a real beautiful way in 2 Corinthians 4. And I think it just it resonates with me because I think of the kind of people that we have in our church. When you think about, think about your, your favorite group that you like to listen to, your favorite band or whoever it might be. When you listen to a song that you really like, what does it do? It moves you, doesn't it? Who, who did the 14-mile hike yesterday? When you got to the top, you told me yesterday, what was it like at the top? It was amazing. Was it moving? It was moving, right? When you get to a vista and you get to look out and you see something beautiful, it's captivating and it moves you. Like a great song moves you. Like a great painting might move you. A great movie might move you. Paul says when we come to the gospel, when we come to the truth about what God has done for you in Jesus, you're exposed to him, but what you're exposed to is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. You're exposed to Jesus and the profound beauty of who he is, the excellence of his person, so moves you that it doesn't just move you to an emotional experience, it moves you to the point of being transformed. That's what Paul says there, so that you're changed from one degree of glory to another. It's transforming because you've been exposed to a person in a very similar kind of way, just to a, a greater degree, because it's the Spirit of God who does it, as when you see the vista or when you listen to the piece of music. We're moved to the point of change, and so we feel the weight of the stain of others. We feel our own stain of our own inabilities, but we feel the stain of the person of Jesus, because we've been stained by him. And we long for people to see him for who he truly is. This guy I meet with periodically, he struggles so deeply, and he goes into dark places. Dark places. And the thing that I long for him, I feel the weight of his struggle. I feel my inabilities in being able to speak to that primal place in his life that's so empty at times. But I'm longing for him to see Jesus for who he really is. And I'm feeling the weight of all of that. And it's an urgent place. And Hezekiah is in that place. He feels the urgency of his situation. And he recognizes that it's all beyond hope. And the second thing that's happening I want you to recognize about this urgent situation is that the whole reasonableness of trusting God is being called into question. That's what the Rabshak is doing. The Rabshakeh looks at all these people on the wall and he says, look, don't let Hezekiah tell you, deceive you by getting you to trust in all this verbiage that you call your faith. Don't let Hezekiah deceive you by making you somehow believe that words are, this is what he says, that mere words are power for war. Your words, your expression of faith, your trust in the promises of God and the God you deliver cannot defeat this army. And he's saying, for you to believe that your little spiritual verbiage is somehow going to deal with this immense army is ludicrous. And as I was talking about this in the last class, the thing that I recognized is that the Reb Shaka is right. The Reb Shaka is right, but I want you to hear this. 20,000 people don't defeat 200,000 people. There is no hope. Language does not feed, 
defeat an army, and this is ludicrous, it's absurd, and the Rav Shaka is right, the Rav Shaka is convinced, absolutely, except that Jesus rose from the dead. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, the Rav Shaka is correct. And this is all just a bunch of smoke and mirrors, it's a bunch of language, it's a bunch of spirit speak, spiritual speak. It's like Hallmark cards. Oh, that's a sweet thought, you know? That's a sweet thought that your words will defeat that army. Problem is it won't work. The problem is that we actually agree more with the Rav Shaka than we agree with Hezekiah. We actually don't believe that our faith and the promises of God are power to defeat hopeless situations. That our God can break in and deal with things that are way beyond our ability to understand, to grapple with. And the Rav Shaka is actually revealing things that are very true about us. It's why we don't pray. Why don't we pray? Because at the end, we bought into what the Rav Shaka is saying. These words aren't going to get me anywhere. They're going to bounce off the ceiling. They're going to bounce off this floor. It's just spiritual exercise. It's a spiritual discipline. I read my Bible, I pray, I go to church, I hear sermons. It's a discipline. Instead of recognizing, no, when I pray, I'm talking to the God who spun the planets into space. When I pray, I'm, I recognize that our ability to move men through God. And all of that is being called into question. When you go to college, wherever you go, the one thing that's going to happen is Rav Shaka's are going to stand in your classroom, they're going to be in your sorority, they're going to be in your dorm, they're going to be wherever you go, and they're going to call into question the reasonableness of your faith because it seems foolish, it's absurd, that your silly little promises will ever deal with the immense problems of this world. And they're right unless Jesus rose from the dead. That's the game changer. And so if you don't believe Jesus rose from the dead, the Rabshak is true. The Rabshak is right. But he's wrong if Jesus rose from the dead. Then what seems to be foolishness is the wisdom of God. It's the resurrection that makes that foolishness the wisdom of God. So the reasonableness of trusting in God has been called into question. And lastly, there's a sense of urgency with Hezekiah, because the faith of the people is failing. Everywhere he goes, look, these women can't even give birth. You know that there's despair over here. There's depression over here. It's the same kind of thing that Moses, Moses experienced when he led the people to the Red Sea. He leads them out of Egypt, and he gets to the Red Sea, and there's this Red Sea that's impassable, right? He has no idea what God is going to do. He just, there's a big Red Sea in front of us, and we cannot get through it. So let's turn around. And what's behind him? What? The army of Egypt. That's bigger and badder than them. So they've got an undefeatable army behind them. They've got an unpassable sea in front of them. They are in a situation that is against hope. And the people begin to, to lose strength. They begin to despair. Hezekiah is in that same place. Paul even knew that place. He talks about it in 2 Corinthians 1 where things got in his life got so bad that he despaired of life. Hezekiah sees this happening. Let me say right at this point, that this is a crucial point in Hezekiah's story, and it's going to become a crucial point in your story story that you're going to have to share one day is what you do when you get to this point. What many people do when they're your age is they leave the church. I've got a problem that's too big. I've got problems that are too deep. I've got a God who seems to be abstract, and so they leave. And they leave with a basket full of depression because of who they are, a basket full of despair because they, they see things in this world that they don't know what to deal with, and a bunch of questions about a glory of God that just seems to be abstract and unpersonal and disconnected. What you do at this point is vital. 
What you do at this point will define you and your experience in the Christian life and whether or not you will press on and follow Jesus. Or whether you'll be like so many in my church who show back up at 27 and 28 and 29 after just jettisoning, jettison, jettisoning Christianity but realizing out there there's nothing and then sort of coming back all scathed and scarred and, and damaged but coming back to Jesus. I just see this so, so often that this is the point where people check out. But I want you to see Hezekiah's response. We're back in the story and we're in chapter 19. By the way, there, there is something we could talk about here. It's worth talking about in your groups. I didn't talk about this last time, but there's actually something happens here and you find it in chapter 18. It's just a really interesting thing. The king of Assyria says in verse 31, make peace with me. And what the king of Assyria promises is very similar to what God promised the people of Israel when they were going to the land of Egypt. I am going to take you to a land flowing with milk and honey. He says, I am going to provide you with your salvation. I will be your savior. You don't need to look to your God. I'll be your savior. I'll give you your heaven. And here's the gospel. You trust in me. Oh, and by the way, I'm going to lead you away in bondage. When we come to this point in your life, the issue is not that you may not trust God, you're going to trust somebody. There's going to be some kind of gospel in your life that you're going to turn to. Heaven for you at that moment might be, I've got to have a great relationship. Hell for you might be the, to be without a relationship, and the Savior for you at that moment is going to be any guy or any gal that gives you that relationship. And that's going to be your gospel and your Savior. And it's never going to fulfill. It's going to lead you into bondage. Heaven for you might be a great career. Hell for you might be the lack of one. And the Savior for you is going to be any company, anything that grants you that career. And so you're going to go and you're going to experience that career. And just like the king of Assyria is going to lead you into bondage. The issue is not that you're not going to follow some God and trust him. You're going to trust the gospel. The issue is which one are you going to trust at that point? And the king of Assyria is giving the people of Israel a different gospel option. He's giving them a different set of promises. He says, I will be your savior. By the way, it will lead you into bondage. It's always the case. It's not, will you trust God? You're going to trust someone. It's just, which gospel will you trust at that point? But we read Hezekiah's response in chapter 19. Verse 14. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear the words of Sennacherib which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. Verse 19 has become one of my favorite verses. Now, so now, O Lord our God, save us, please, from his hand. By the way, that's where most of our prayers would stop. That's where my prayer inherently would stop. God, i got a bad situation. Would you save me? Would you deliver me? You are the Lord God, our deliverer, and we need to be delivered. And that's an honest prayer, and that's a good prayer. But Hezekiah keeps praying. And what, he, what the other things that he says here are really important. He says, deliver us so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. Hezekiah walks into the temple. And you notice he's, you could just see him walking through the city. And as he's walking through the temple, there's all these people just calling out to him, Hezekiah, what will you do? What's the strategy? How are we going to engage those people, defeat them, whatever it might be? And they're all wanting Hezekiah on the walls to go this way, to organize that. And Hezekiah, I just imagine him quietly walking to the temple, sort of 
going against the tide of everything that's being asked of him because he knows that the real battle is going to be fought in the temple. That this war is not going to be won by might nor by power. It's going to be won by God himself, by his spirit. And so it's counterintuitive. Everything inside of you thinks you need to get on the wall and deal with that issue. Hezekiah understands that the kingdom of God is counterintuitive. It runs, rubs against the grain of the way that you naturally live. And Jesus comes. You can't read the Gospels without running smack into the counterintuitive nature of the kingdom. Jesus says, do you want to live? What needs to happen? You need to die. You want to experience life? Give yourself away. And here, Hezekiah knows that the thing inside of him that maybe he feels like he ought to do and get out there and start doing something is not what needs to happen. He needs to go into the temple, and it's counterintuitive. It runs against conventional wisdom. It's the wisdom of the kingdom of God, and he needs to get before the throne of God, and so he does. And he begins to pray, and the first thing he says is, God, you need to deliver us because this is not about us anymore. It's not about the however many people are living in the city. This is bigger than us. It's about you. How else is the world going to know that our God is the true God unless you show up? See, the Rabshakeh has already stood outside the city and said, look, we devastated, decimated every other nation in the land, right? And as we've gone through, and as we've come to each country, that little nation has called on their God. They probably cut themselves and offered sacrifices, just like we saw with Elijah. And in each time, after they were done with all of that, we annihilated them. And then we went to the next town, and they called on their God, and they did their sacrifices, and then we annihilated them. And we did, and he goes, he says, where's all these gods? He says, not once did they show up. We've shown through our great story and through our accomplishments that religion is a farce. And so Hezekiah prays and he says, Lord, how else is the world going to know that Christianity, that our God, is the true God unless you show up? Unless you show yourself as the God who delivers, as the God who keeps his promises, the God who is there as you promise to be with your people. What the world has come to recognize is that all these other religions are placebos. You know what a placebo is? Who can tell me what a placebo is? Yeah, so it's usually a pill looks like the real pill, real pill, but inside it is usually salt water or water, just water, right? So it looks like something, but it's nothing. There's nothing in it. And that's what the Rav Shack is saying. Look, we've shown time and time again that religion and all these gods are just a bunch of hot air. And that words can't deliver you, will not deliver you. And they say, therefore, if you listen to Hezekiah, you're going to be deceived, and we're going to show you that you're going to be decimated like all these other. And so Hezekiah is stained with the weight of God's glory. He's stained with his own inability. He's stained with the weight of the people in front of him. And he says, with all of that, God, you need to deliver us so that the world knows that you are the true God. You need to act in our life. And he prays, and he prays with a kind of urgency. And I think as he does that, he, he models what Jesus talks about and the way Jesus taught us to pray. And I want you to see something that I, I'm sort of assuming that most of you haven't seen before, even though you've probably read it. And it's in Luke chapter 11. I want you to turn, turn there. We're sort of going to wrap up with this point. I'm giving you a lot today, and I understand that. I never talk this long in my church. I wouldn't do it here, but I only got two times with you. So I'm giving you all I got. That's just the way it is. Um, and not apologizing for it. Uh, Luke 11. This will be brief, though. Something transpires here that I think is just profound. Verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples came to him, 
said, Lord, teach us to pray. Get what's, I think, happened here. The disciples are with Jesus, and Jesus starts praying. And I don't think the disciples are saying, Lord, teach us to pray because they've never experienced prayer before. They've never seen it, or they've never prayed before. I think they've been around prayer. They've prayed themselves. But now as they get away with Jesus, Jesus starts praying. And when he starts praying, they recognize they can't pray. There's something about the way that he prays that's very different about the way than from the way that they pray. And their response to it is somehow, Lord, we don't know how to pray. And so they say, Lord, teach us how to pray. And so part of the answer of Jesus is he gives them the Lord's Prayer, which is, which is about these are the things that you ought to be praying about. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, right? And he goes all the way through the Lord's Prayer. I actually don't think that that was the principal thing that sparked that question with the disciple. I think it was the way Jesus was praying. I think Jesus prayed in a way that just caught them off guard. Because Jesus goes on to answer this question in the next paragraph, and that's what I want us to read. And he said to them, Which of you has a friend who will go with him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, received, and the one who seeks, finds. And the, to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more... Will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of Him? Disciples say, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus says, if you want to understand what it means to pray, you need to pray with impudence. And that's a word I expect nobody here knows. It's not a word that we use. It's not a normal part of our vocabulary. But I want to introduce it into yours. I want you to write it down somewhere. I want you to learn this word. Because it's a powerful word and it will change you if you get this word. If you leave here and you say, what did Rick, what did you learn from Rick the last couple days? I'll be happy if you say impudence. Not impotence. I, I'm a chaplain at a prison. And some guy came after me as I was talking about this. So Rick, we need to be impotent. No, you don't need to be impotent. You need to be impudent. World of difference between the two, right? So Jesus says, look, this is the way that you're to pray. And let me tell you what, imp what impudence is. Impudence is a lack of sensitivity to what is proper. Impudence is not just boldness. It's boldness with shamelessness. It's praying without a lack. Of, it's praying without respect. It's praying without modesty. Do you get what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying, that's how you pray. You don't sit down at the table and say, God is good, God is great, thank you for the food, amen. He says, you want to know what prayer is. It's praying with impudence. It's praying with a lack of sensitivity to what is proper. It's coming into the throne room of God in a shameless, kind of almost inappropriate kind of way. It's like Jacob wrestling with God. It's like Moses on Mount Sinai saying, God, I will not go unless you come with me. I will not go unless you come. That's impudence. And I think that's what Hezekiah was doing on the ground as he's pleading with God. God, how else are they going to know out there unless you show yourself to be a God who keeps his promises? It's what you see the church of God doing in the book of Acts. They go out and they preach the word of God with boldness. There's opposition. 
but they've been stained with the weight of their friends. They know their inabilities. They also know God's promise to bless the nation. And so they pray, they pray earnestly, and they take the promises of God, and they say, God, you've promised to give us things. You've promised to bless the world. You've promised to send us your spirit. So send us your spirit so that we might go out and preach your word boldly. And it says then that the spirit of God was on them, and abundant grace was on them all. It's praying with impudence. And the thing that enables us to pray that kind of way is not a type A personality. It's not an arrogance. It's not the crazy stuff you see on TV. That's just, that's awful. Impudence doesn't come from your personality. It's not just a bunch of hot air. It's not being loud necessarily either. Impudence comes from confidence in the blood of Jesus. Hebrews 10. Come boldly through to the throne of grace, having been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. God says the way, if you understand the significance of the blood of Jesus, it will impact the way that you come before me. You won't hesitate. You won't come bashfully. You won't come shyly. You'll come with a lack of sensitivity to what is proper. You'll talk to me in a new kind of way. Not because you're arrogant, but because you have grand confidence that my blood speaks louder than your sin. That the blood of Jesus, however great your sin, the blood of Jesus is greater. However great your failure, his sacrifice is greater. And having been sprinkled with his blood, you come boldly to his throne. Hezekiah is doing that. And he's pleading. He has a sense of urgency. He has a sense of confidence. And he has a sense of expectation that the God who is there, the God who revealed himself as the Lord our God, our deliverer, who is the God of hope, who is the God of encouragement and the God of endurance, the God of comfort, the Father of mercies, who's promised to be with you and to never leave you as an orphan, to grant you the grace and mercy that you need. Hezekiah is praying to that God, and that God hears him. God answers his prayer, we read in chapter 19, and God defeats the undefeatable army. If you follow Jesus, friends, like if you follow Jesus, you are going to confront sooner than later undefeatable armies, people without hope, and you will either experience despair over their situation, depression over your inability or the gospel will give you a sense of urgency and confidence and a sense of expectation to come boldly to the throne of God so that God can do what you cannot. And when we begin to pray that way, the world will begin to believe that God the Father sent the Son. The world will begin to believe that Christianity and Jesus, as opposed to all the other faiths and religion of this world, is the true religion not just because it's reasonable, not just because it's wise, or because we can make great apologetic arguments. It's because our God acts in the lives of his people. Our God is a God of the living, who still answers prayer. I want to come all the way back to the very beginning where I started. When you pray, do you pray with an expectation? Do you pray like Hezekiah? Or do you pray like the Rev Shekhar? Do you pray believing really that your words are going to bounce off the wall and that words have no power to defeat hopeless situations? Or do you pray like Hezekiah? Do you pray believing that because Jesus came in human history, God can create possibilities where none exist? That God can break into hopeless situations and create hope? That God can break into lives where people know nothing but death and despair and depression? and get abundant life. If you begin to believe that, even with the faith of a mustard seed, Jesus says you'll even do greater works than I do, than I did, as you pray. Do you understand that? I want you to think for a moment. How much do you think you can do for Jesus? How much do you think you can do for Jesus? Double that. Triple that. That's really what Jesus is saying in John 14. 
if you'll have the faith of the mustard seed, if you'll start praying, you'll do greater works than I did. People will be transferred out of the kingdom of darkness, like we've been reading, into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. People who didn't see will see. People who didn't hear will hear. People who are walking in death and sin will be raised in newness of life. If you'll believe and if you'll pray. But we won't do that without a sense of urgency until we've been stained by others. And people, our God is a God who answers. I was on the phone yesterday, right, with Mark. We have a prayer meeting on Tuesday night. We have a prayer service, not a prayer meeting. And so I have a long email about all the prayers that were answered at our prayer service that we just got to celebrate. One of them was the Mayots. I could just go through a bunch of these. The Mayots uh, were given $10,000 within a few hours from just out of nowhere. And all that happened was people prayed. Another gal in our church who leads worship, her husband had lost a deposit at a great restaurant. And uh, we had prayed about that situation the week before because they couldn't afford that and they have no idea what happened. There's been theft there before and it's more than likely that someone stole it, but he was responsible for it. And so we prayed, Lord, they need this amount of money to cover that. She came and she shared that, you know what, Rick, you had given me an envelope with money, it must have been a year ago, and it had exactly the amount of money I needed in it. And God provided, was stuck in some drawer. She goes, I don't know why I did it, but there it was. And she got to share that. There's another gal in our church who actually works at that same restaurant where the deposit was lost. And she's not been coming in a long time because she's been struggling with just living in this black pit of despair. She can't sleep at night. Her body has just been malfunctioning. And so actually the guy who lost the deposit prayed for her. She said, for the first time this year, I know what it is to sleep, and the blackness and the despair is gone. So, is that the God that you pray to? I was coming home two months ago from our tax man. I got the great news that I owed $1,500 in taxes and $500 to my tax man. Two grand I owed in the next week. So I'm driving home, I'm sort of laughing about it. And my prayer at that point was, God, I need a bonus. And I'm at the top of the food chain and I don't even have elders at my church to ask. So I need, you, I need a bonus. And I just sort of laughed about it, but that was my prayer. And I'm coming over the bridge from San Pedro driving home and I get home and I'm opening my mail and I'm actually talking to this girl, talking to Emily. And, uh, and I just lose it while I'm talking to her. Because there's a, a letter from a family I hadn't seen in 10 years who'd come into a pile of money. I hadn't talked to them in 10 years and they said, you know, we decided to give 2,000 of it away and we just thought, couldn't think of a better place to send it to than to you. I had just prayed that 20 minutes before that. Now we think, is that so, is that so amazing? Or does that just simply illustrate that Hezekiah is right and the Rabshakeh is wrong? And do we need to pray with a new kind of urgency? Do we need to pray in a new kind of way? And I could share, my boys know I have a box at home. I have a Bible box. Oh, it was the box of the Bible I threw out the window. So my old uh, Geneva, anyhow. Inside that box are just letters and letters of ways from people and ways that God has answered requests in my life. I have so many stories to tell. When the Israelites crossed the Jordan, they set up 12 stones, right? And every time they passed by, they would look at those stones and tell the stories of what God has done. Do you have any stones? We need stones. You need a box full of letters, full of statements of what God has done. And when people doubt, you need to be able to pull out the stones and say, let me tell you what God has done for let me just tell you the stories that our God is a God who delivers. He's a God who answers prayer. And when people in your school doubt that you serve the true God, you need to be able to tell stories. And there needs to be a sense of urgency about that. But for that, we also need a sense of confidence in the blood of Jesus. And a sense of expectation that our God hears our prayer and he truly answers. Before we wrap up in a word just in a word of prayer. Um, 
I know as we talk about this, as we talk about prayer, we're talking about something that's difficult. With all the things that people wrestle with, the thing that I think we wrestle with the most, not just you students, it's going to be all the staff, all the counselors here, we wrestle with prayer. It's just if we're all honest, that's, that's where we, that's one of the battles we fight. And one of the things I think, one of the places we need to learn to begin to pray is, God, we believe, help our unbelief. If prayer is a barometer of faith, we don't just need greater prayer, we need greater faith. And we need to pray that God would help us in our unbelief to have greater confidence in the blood of Jesus. See? That God would grant us that faith. So let me ask, any, any questions about any of this? I know I just gave you a boatload of stuff. I know some of it's heavy, and some of it's challenging. Hopefully a lot of it, hopefully it just sort of connects with where you're at. But any questions about that before we wrap up? Question that you would have? So just before I pray, just a reminder that if you do have questions, and so I know sometimes, or if you have issues, just a reminder to, to write those things out today, if you could, to get those to John, to get those to me, to get those to any staff, really. Or put them in the box where that box is. And uh, we'll be able to go over those next time. So let's pray together. Father, we live at, at a time and an era that is plagued by disbelief. We have a lot of churches with a lot of energy, but very little faith. And we wonder why we see so little in this day and age. Lord, we see so little because we pray for so little. You say you don't have because you don't ask. And Lord, we're not asking because we don't believe. And Lord, we're not believing because we're losing our confidence in your blood. And we just pray, number one, that you would forgive our disbelief. But that, Lord, that you would begin to work again a heart of faith and belief. That we would really begin to believe your great promises. And that we begin to lean into them. We begin to embrace them. Learn to pray with impudence. Learn to pray in a new kind of way. Because of the great work of Jesus. Lord, I pray that this group would leave taking a step forward in the direction of becoming a praying people. A people who call on the name of the Lord. So that you show yourself to be the God who answers prayer the God who is with his people, the God who shows up. Father, how else will the world believe that you are the true God? Thank you for the word that is just is a light into our path, that reveals things about us, but also reveals things about Jesus. And we pray this in Christ's name.